Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. From Tsunami Sushi in downtown Lafayette, we're Out to Lunch with Christian Maida, editor and publisher of The Current. It's business Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mater. There's a well-documented nursing shortage in the U.S., and we tend to think of it as something that impacts hospitals and primary care. And when my, my guest Shelly Henry first started nursing, it was pretty common for one nurse to manage 10 patients, and today it's closer to 20. And that shortage is also impacting end-of-life care. Hospices need nurses, and it's getting harder to find them, and demand for hospice and palliative care is growing. Shelly spent 20 years as a hospice nurse and learned the ins and outs of the business. And like any good entrepreneur, she saw a problem and had a solution. Amity Group. Amity recruits and supplies nursing staff exclusively to hospices. It's the only staffing agency of its kind in Louisiana and one of relatively few in the country. Today, it serves about 60 clients, most of them independent hospices, with a staff of 22 nurses. It's hard to find nurses. And if 20 interviewed, Shelly says she might hire two. She's passionate about training and workforce development and posts tips and advice videos for hospice nurses on social media. And she also conducts an annual survey of nurses to help advocate for improvements in the healthcare industry. Shelly was born in Texas, but has called Youngsville home for most of her life. Shelly Henry, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Standards of care are important in end-of-life businesses. It's an industry built on empathy and human touch, and that's no different when you're dealing with grief, especially when a family loses a pet. My guest, Catherine LeMoyne, has made a career in animal care and in pet cremation. In 2023, she opened a Pet Passages franchise. Now, Pet Passages provides cremation services funerals and memorialization for bereaved pet owners. The company organizes private or communal cremations and puts together online memorials with music, photos, personal messages. It's a tough business, she says, but not necessarily because of the subject matter. Families come to her for empathy and a high standard, uh, and finding good employees who can maintain that level of care is a challenge. Catherine was born and raised in Lafayette. Catherine Lemoyne, welcome to Out to Lunch. Hey, nice to meet you. So, Shelly, you took your first job in hospice care, I read, um, thinking maybe this will be kind of a calmer, slower-paced kind of business, and then you figure out, no, that's not true. I mean, is that a common experience for people that get into the business? Like, they think, hey, I want to do something that's a little bit slower-paced, and they're like, wait, this is not what I thought I was signing up for. It, it really is, because we think, you know, going from the hospital into hospice, where you're providing end-of-life care, that it's going to be... A lot of sitting at the bedside and holding people's hands and that kind of thing. And we do that, but we do all of the same skill that people do in the hospital, nurses sure. in the hospital. We just do it in, in the home. Yeah. And we're in there by ourselves and having to figure out how to make it work in whatever environment that we're in, which can be a little challenging. Um, so it is. it was definitely much more than I thought it was going to be, but I just I fell in love with it when I first started doing it. Is that the typical pipeline? I mean, do most people kind of start in general nursing, let's say, and then kind of move into hospice? Or, or, or are people these days kind of getting trained, right? Okay, I'm going to go into hospice, kind of like, you know, maybe how a doctor might, you know, I'm going to, I know I want to be a radiologist, so I'm going to go do my radiology residency or whatever. Actually, in the state of Louisiana, a nurse has to have at least two years of experience before they can go into hospice. Wow, so okay. um, I don't know if every state has that rule, but I don't ever recommend at least two years, if not more, because you are performing all of those skills in the home all by yourself. You don't have your peers 
in the next room that can come and help you. So you need to be pretty confident in what you're doing. Yeah, so I mean, you need a certain baseline of, of skill sets to get into it. Yes. So, so, so Catherine, I, I understand it's also not easy to find <laughs> people who do what you do, right? And and then you kind of layer on this need uh, for this to fit a certain psychological profile that a person's like basically kind and able to deal <laughs> with, um, you know, people who are going through some grief. So, so the applicant pool would seem to be small. I mean, where do you start if you need to find people? Um, I'm, I like to find people who have at least a background in the veterinary industry yeah. because a, a, a pet owner is a very unique individual when sure. it comes to emotions and attachment and things like that. So having someone that's familiar with that bond is extremely important. Um, so that's usually my first place. Also, the second thing I always look for and you know focus on is temperament, personality. It's a, it's a thing. You either have it or you don't. You probably noticed that with like hospice too. It's just not something everyone can do and it's not really something you can teach people if they don't have it. So it's just a, I guess like a personality trait you've got to look for and yeah. see in a person if you want to bring them on to an industry like this. Have you generally found that, Shelly? Is, is it sort of like a certain knack that some people have or, or, or is it the kind of thing that you find that you can train? I mean, I guess the compassion element, is that just human nature or is it something that we can learn? No, it's definitely, I don't think human nature. I think that it's not, it's not for everybody. Sure. You know, there are some people that are just more analytical minded and like the everything to happen this exact way every time. And that's great. And then there's, but to do, I think what both of us do, you have to be very fluid and being able to read the room and the situation and, and set what you're going to do based on that. Yeah. So, so Catherine, I read, you, you, you know, people who come to you can have a private, semi-private, communal cremation. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, the first thing that stuck out to me was like, I, you know, I'm mostly familiar with cremation as, as it pertains to, you know, a, a, a person who dies, right? I wasn't aware that people attended cremations, period, whether they were private or communal. Correct. Um, it, just, it depends on, on the client themselves, you know. Um, not everybody wants a collection of boxes on their shelves, you yeah. know, but they don't want, they can't bury their pet and they most certainly don't want to throw them away. So in those situations, we do the communal cremation. So at least they get a respectful send off. Yeah. Um, but for the majority of our clients, we do the private or the semi-private, which is, you know, the options in order to receive your pet's ashes back. You know, the private is a truly private one pet only in the entire chamber by themselves. The semi-private is multiple pets. However, they're completely segregated from each other in their own containers. So that way, either one you choose when the process is done the client gets their pet and only their pet's ashes back. The semi-private just offers a more affordable option because not, usually when you lose a pet, you've just spent a lot of money at the vet or you've been spending, you know, so not everybody can afford to do extravagant things, but they still want to be able to bring their pet home with them when it's done. Okay, so, so maybe I misunderstood. So the folks aren't like sitting here while the furnace is doing its work. No, not okay, usually, okay. but we do that and we've actually, we had um, a service this week and we had a service a week before, the week before, and the one before was a witness. They, mm -hmm. they witnessed the cremation. They wanted to see the cremation process and say goodbye in the mm -hmm. moment. Yeah. Um, in the 10 years I've done this, I've had that specific request maybe a handful of times. Um, the other thing we offer is filming the cremation process because they might not be able to be present or not want to be present, but they want that peace of mind that 
their pet is going where we say their pet's going. Hmm. And if they need that, we're here to provide that for them. So, Shelly, I mean, uh, you know, you're, you've talked a little bit about how the, the, the nurses kind of have to have a certain baseline understanding of, you know, some medical care. They, they still attend to some medical needs and things like that. But obviously there's a whole other set of things that you do in the context of hospice. But I, so that kind of has me wondering about, like, what kind of customization that people tend to go for. I mean, it, what, what happens at that point in a hospice room? How, how is that changed? I mean, what, what, what else does a nurse do beyond, right, the, the standard medical care, as is, I guess, for lack so, of a better term? Well, we do, we do a lot. And I think um, there's a lot that's some of the misconceptions of hospice. We do a lot of care. We do, just because someone's on hospice doesn't mean that we don't treat things. So we still sure. treat everything that's going on with them. But we do a lot of work with the family um, and helping the person in the family come to terms with what's going on. We, do, actually, we deal a lot with people's pets and things yeah. like that. My too. mom was a hospice nurse. So oh, was she really? Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's interesting. So we, we help them prepare for um, what they're going through, what's going to be going on after we help them if we have to make funeral arrangements and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, we do a lot of last wishes. Like I had a patient one time who his, he didn't have any family and his only wish was to go to a Renaissance fair. Hmm. And so in Louisiana, we don't have that, but there was one, I think it was in Alabama. So we ended up working with several other hospices mm-hmm. and we, we, we took him and we drove him to the state line because we can't cross the state line with our license. Back then there was no such thing as a compact license. So a nurse licensed in Mississippi would pick him up and then she drove him to the state line and then they picked him up in Alabama. Anyway, it was a big thing. We had the medical supply company all set up in the hotels along the way and all of that. And then the Renaissance Fair knew he was coming, so they ended up making him like the the grand king master. He got to ride in on the mm-hmm. chariot and everything. It was great. And then when it was over, we turned around and the whole process to bring him back home. So we do a lot of those kind of things, too. I did not know that the people did last wishes in hospice. Is that common? I mean, for somebody to say, like, I, I have a thing that I want to do and, and so that it becomes the, I guess... I don't know the obligation, but but something that the home, the hospice nurse needs to do. It is something that if, if the nurses want to do it, I'm, most of that we did on our own time. Sure. So you know, wow. it just it depends. Yeah. But yeah, that we we always do that whenever we can. We do a lot of that. That's fascinating. Uh, I mean, Catherine, I feel stupid asking this question. I mean, pets don't really have last wishes. I mean, I, I don't suppose if they well they might, but they may not tell us. I mean, but do, do, do folks have, like, those kinds of arrangements? They come in, they say, like, well, you know, my, my pet, I, I know you're kind of coming into the process usually after maybe, the, well, obviously, by definition, after the death or after the euthanasia, maybe. So, But but do people come in with a similar kind of thing? Do you ever take a dog uh, to a last minute to a rena- renaissance fair or something like that? We don't. However, it is becoming a thing where they do have, like, they take the final and, like, the beautiful like they'll have photographer a photographer come and like they take the pet and they take it to the park or get it cheeseburgers mm-hmm. and just do a lot of special things whenever they have the euthanasia schedule so it's like their last day so they bring them give them all the treats and all the attention and just make a big day out of it um so things like that are becoming more common hmm. in this industry um is it something that we're really involved in no but we do work closely with a lot of veterinarians that do provide the euthanasia service mm-hmm. so we actually have a you know our private rooms can be used 
by the vets and the clients themselves and have the euthanasia performed on site so they're not in a clinical setting of the veterinary office or um, you know stuck at their own home not everybody wants that procedure performed mm -hmm. in their home um, so we kind of come in at the tail end of it they can have their special day all their treats and at the end of the the day the vet and them can come to our facility mm -hmm. and take care of it there do you, do you guys also do like an interment? I mean, do people come? Like, is, is there a pet cemetery kind of thing happening there? We don't. We, like, we. I mean, we offer like burial, like, like uh, boxes and things like that. But sure. we don't really get into the whole burial. There's a lot of regulation there. There's a lot of upkeep and a lot of maintenance. Um, in Louisiana, I think there's one in maybe Metairie mm -hmm. or in St. Francisville. That's an actual pet cemetery. But okay. we don't. We don't do any of that. Now, now, Shelley, you do a good bit of sort of you know videos that you produce to give people advice or, or tips about you know the the role of a hospice nurse how to, how to do better I mean, what kind of advice are you finding people respond to i mean what, what kind of tips are you hoping they pick up from you well most of my tips are geared for hospice nurses specifically so i don't it's not really as much for the public yeah. although i do some of it does help help the general public but i'm giving tips to the hospice nurses that are out there in the field because we don't have that same ability to meet with each other like you do in the hospital so mm -hmm. when i find out something i'm going hey this worked great for me i'm going to share this with my fellow nurses so yep. that's most of what my tips are well for. i guess i'm trying to get a sense of what a tip might be i mean is it you know uh, you know a, a way to handle a specific situation i mean what, what, what kind of what talk you take me into the the culture of <laughs> okay. hospice nurse social media right like what's hospice nurse TikTok look like okay so yep. hospice nurse TikTok. on yep. tuesdays i give tips on patient care issues things yep. like um different ways to administer medications yeah. or different ways to treat certain things. On Thursdays, I do tips on documentation because unfortunately, as much as we hate it, and I don't know if this is part of your industry, but documentation rules everything we do. So I teach nurses how to make it faster, easier, better. Mm -hmm. And then on Fridays, I do self-care and safety tips. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. I'm talking to Shelly Henry of Amity Group and Catherine Lemoyne, who owns a local pet passages franchise. Catherine, you, you've got social media presence too it sounds like right i mean apparently <laughs> <laughs> well I, I mean we were just gonna out shelly i mean shelly said she follows you so I mean, there you go um i mean what what are you just primarily using that for marketing i mean what, what what's i mean I, uh, we have our business page of course and yeah. i do a lot of marketing through there yeah. like i do a weekly product spotlight where i have a you know okay. a description of a lot of the memorial options we yeah. offer um i mean but like, I mean, my personal Facebook page, I'm just, I'm just goofy and, and people appreciate that. And so while I'm in a sad industry, I can make people laugh and yeah. that kind of kind of evens out. So yeah. for all the crying, I got to make some people laugh to kind of make up for it. And I, I guess yeah. people enjoy that. Yeah. I mean, do, do you find, you know, good humor in the general sense? Is it important? I mean, you talked a bit earlier, like either people have it for this industry. Yeah. They don't. I mean, is, is the good humor piece important? Yeah, it is. And it, it's not to pat myself on the back, like, I mean, my clients come in, they're distraught, they're distraught. And usually by the time they come back and pick up the pet's ashes, we can have like a happy conversation. And it's, it's like a goal. If, if, they're, if they're open to it, you know, getting them to smile on their way out is important. You know, we're bringing closure, we're bringing comfort, we're bringing compassion. And so, you know, a good laugh, if warranted, is a good thing to have, but it's a it's a read the room thing. It's not for everybody, you know. And so you gotta you gotta learn that. And over ten years and helping thousands of people, I guess it's something I've kind of honed in on 
subconsciously, I guess. Yeah. And it's kind of it's kind of been my thing. <laughs> Is it? Do we, do 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 you need? training to talk to people about death? I mean, I, I feel like it's not some, like I have kids and it comes up, you know, we've been to funerals and like I, they'll ask me a question about it and I think, how do I explain this to a five-year-old or whatever? But I mean, it's one thing to explain it to a five-year-old who may not internalize it. It might be like, oh yeah, that's interesting and then kind of walk off. But but it's different to deal with a family and, and teach people not just how to handle what the patient, right, is going through, I would think, Shelly, but, but how to talk about death and transition and what comes. I mean, yes. is that something that nurses are trained to do to how to talk they about death? They are not trained for that. Doctors aren't trained. We don't receive any training for that in school. At least we haven't. I think that's becoming more aware, yeah. but that's one of the things that I teach. So, so frequently we get a patient onto hospice and I go in to admit the person and they don't even know they have a terminal illness because everyone was too afraid to tell them. So we have to have those conversations and how do you approach that? And so I also do videos on that. A lot of how do you talk about this and, you know, what do we say and those kind of things. Is it better to be, and I mean this respectfully, like frank about it? I mean, so I'm a journalist, right? And so one thing that they teach you in your second day of school in journalism is how to write, you know, obits. And, and you know, we'll often talk about don't use euphemisms, right? Like in, in, in media, like don't say passed away. You don't say left this earth or whatever you you say he died or whatever say, it is uh, yes I, I say died and i i will i always address the elephant in the room like i had a patient one time that was um newly diagnosed with a brain tumor and he was a young man he was like 64 years old wow. and so you know i go through my whole hospice thing to tell him what we're doing and all of that and he's just looking at me the whole time and i when i'm done i, I looked at him and i knew what he wanted me to say and i said you want me to tell you you're not gonna die right and he shook his head and i said i can't tell you that but what I can tell you is that you're not going to be in pain, you're not going to be alone, and you will have dignity. That's yeah. what I can tell you, but I can't tell you that you're not going to die. Yeah. I mean, it, Catherine, do you find that frankness is a part of this for you? I mean, it is. You don't, I mean, you don't want to be clinical. You know, you don't want to sound like the doctor speaking to him, but you can you can over-sugarcoat it. And so, I mean, like a lot, a lot of my phone calls revolve around my pet is about to die or my pet will be dying so how do I know when it's time and so I do have to counsel a lot of people through that like when do I make that decision nobody wants to make the decision to end their best friend's life nobody and so it's always a difficult situation to talk people through and like I said at the same time you don't want to be super clinical about it but you want to just kind of lay it out for them and let them understand you know these are the things to look for and exactly that and then also add in but at the same time only you as the pet owner knows when is the right time because it has to be the right time for you it has to be the right time for you the pet will let you know when they're ready but you have to be ready mm -hmm. and so there's like yeah you gotta be a blunt to an extent with that compassion that comes back around like you said but I can guarantee you it'll be out of pain with the dignity you won't be alone so you've got to have that compassionate support but you've got to be upfront with it mm -hmm. you know it, I, f I find if you sugarcoat a little too much then you're given false hope just like that you want me to tell you you're not going to die and you can't you can't do that with this because death is inevitable it's going to happen you can't avoid it so you have to find the best way to help each person accept that fact. Sure, I mean, Shelly, I gotta say, I mean, I think people complain about <laughs> bedside manner for doctors or whatever, but I, I am surprised to learn there's like very little training on dealing with the subject 
directly. I mean, why is that? Is it just because people don't like to talk about it? Is it that simple? Yeah. I really think it's that simple. Even even medical people don't want to talk about it. And when you work on the other side, on the acute care side of making people better and getting people well, you don't want to talk about the possibility that you aren't going to be able to make that person better. And a lot of doctors and nurses take that personally. Like, you know, we've done everything and it still didn't work. We failed. And they didn't fail. It's just this person's journey is going in this direction. And it's not going. It's going in the transitioning direction and not the healing direction. Yeah. But it's hard for a lot of people to talk about it and admit that. Yeah, I mean, so, so you know, I, I circling back a little bit to the, the, the question of finding the right people to do the work, right? I mean, is it is it... Is this the issue that we find it becomes difficult that people kind of like you interview 20 and you might select two? Is it because you they become aware of just how much they're going to have to confront this directly? Or is it more the temperament thing? I think a lot of it is the temperament, but it is. So as a nurse in the hospital, we have complete control over what goes on with that person. And we have to because they're in the hospital. But hospice is just the opposite. Yeah. We're going into somebody else's environment. We have to integrate into their life and let them their life in the way they want it to. Mm -hmm. So I, I, like, I have to make sure the person is somebody that is able to do that because that can be the hard because mm -hmm. sometimes their life is not the life that we would choose. And what they're, the way they want their life to end may not be the way that our life. Mm -hmm. We see that with drug addiction a lot and things like that. And if this is what somebody has lived their life this way, we have to respect that. And we have to find a way to integrate our care into their life. Hmm. I mean, Catherine, it has me sort of curious if, if doing this work has, I mean, I know you're dealing mostly with, with pets and families, but I mean, I have a dog. I know what it's like, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's a member of the family. I mean, has this influenced your perspective on death in general? Um, I wouldn't say it's influenced. It's made me more aware of it. and sure. I, it, Aware of it is about the best I can say with that. Um, it's influenced my opinion of the individual pet owners. I, I, I view them differently because when, when you're in the veterinary field, you kind of, you focus on the ones that are in your clinic all the time and get to spend the money on their pets but at the same time there's this other subset of people that have pets that can't afford extensive veterinary care you don't see them as often and before being in this industry I was convinced people like that just didn't love their pets enough hmm. you know you didn't like or you shouldn't have had it because you, you know but then getting into this industry I take care of those people's pets too and those people are just as hurt they're just as torn they love their pet just as intensely as the people that can afford all of the top of the line care. Mm -hmm. And that is extremely important to recognize that fact that just because someone doesn't do something the same way that you do doesn't mean that they are less capable of loving and caring about something else. Mm -hmm. They just do it differently. Um, and I think that's been the biggest mind switch for me and and that happened early on in my career it was kind of a slap in the face like whoa you know um, but it's something that definitely opened my eyes and changed my entire outlook on people and the community in general I mean what about you Shelly I mean has it has this I have to imagine it's you know, uh, how did it impact kind of the way you think about this yourself and your own in your own family? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. I mean, ha has your perspective on it changed? Absolutely, absolutely. I don't see death in itself as a bad thing. I see it as just a transition of life, a transition of energy. I, I, 
I don't, um, I think it's very sad for the people that are left behind, but I, I now, after doing hospice for so long, I have no fear of death. Mm. I have never, ever seen anyone have a scary death or anything like that. At the end of every person's life that I have ever dealt with, those last few moments, sometimes it's the moments are peaceful and beautiful. Mm. And so it's really changed the way that I look at things. And I think, you know, we talk a lot. We get to know our patients well, and we'll sit with them sometimes, and they tell us stuff. And I've taken care of people from all walks of life. Mm -hmm. And they all it's all the same thing. None of that stuff matters. All of that stuff you worry about, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Mm. And so I think I'm, over the years, I'm integrating that a lot more into my life. Yeah, it's interesting because it kind of makes me feel like maybe the issue for, for, for those of us, and I'll count myself in the number who struggle with the topic, is like, you know, frankly, a, a lack of exposure to it. I mean, we all kind of go through it from time to time, but I mean, both of you were dealing this in industries where this is something you deal with regularly, which most people don't, (laughs) you know, and it's like an isolated incident. I mean, you know, I think I've I've heard from both of you that there's a sense that the work that you do can be interacting with grief, but it doesn't make it a sad thing, right, Catherine? No, it's it's funny because people ask, I started, I started my career in animal shelters, then I moved into as a vet tech and a veterinary nurse, and I, now I do this, and People always say, how can you do such a sad job? And my response always is, out of all of the companion animal industries I've been in, this is actually the least sad. This is the least sad. I'm not taking in abandoned animals. I'm not euthanizing unwanted pets. I'm not delivering bad news to a client, letting them know that their pet has you know, a limited time to live. By the time the client gets to me, the worst is over. Mm-hmm. And when you provide closure, the appreciation that you get from the client is just, it's its over the top. It really is. And so while I'll, I sit there and I'm a very, very emotional person. And so what, like, it's like I'm a communal crier. If they're crying in front of me, no matter how hard I try, I'm a cry with them. Um, but at the same time, when I go home, the fulfillment from having helped someone in such a sensitive and personal situation, a complete stranger in such a sensitive and personal situation, it's just, it's it's uplifting, it really is. So yes, it's a sad industry, but it's not a depressing job by any means. I think it's probably fair to say that death gives life a lot of meaning, and it Does. sounds like both of you have found meaning in your work, and thanks for Absolutely. sharing that with us today on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana today have been Catherine Lemoyne, owner of Pet Passages, and Shelly Henry, founder of Amity Group. We edited this conversation to fit into our time slot here on KRBS. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Pet Passages and Amity Group by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast. You can find and subscribe on your podcast app and on our website, it's acadiana.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on it's acadiana.com and on our Out to Lunch Acadiana social media. These photos were taken by Dylan Babineau. Out to Lunch Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for it's acadiana.com and KRBS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Associate producers are Molly Richard and Chad Terrio. Our researcher is Leah Erdialis. Today's show is engineered by Dylan Babineau. I'm Christian Mater, editor of the current Lafayette's nonprofit newsroom. To get the scoop on Lafayette, head over to thekernela.com and sign up for our free newsletter. We'll see you here uh, next time for more business and conversation on Out to Lunch at Katiana. See you then.
Out to Lunch Acadiana was recorded live over lunch at Tsunami Sushi on Jefferson Street in downtown Lafayette. Tsunami is open Tuesday through Saturday for lunch and dinner, serving sushi, sashimi, salads, and authentic Japanese grilled dishes. Tsunami welcomes casual dining or reservations. More information at servingsushi.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. If you'd like to be part of Out to Lunch, to learn how your business or organization can become an Out to Lunch program partner, email info at inobroadcasting.com.